This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. A couple of years ago, I played on an indoor soccer team in a pretty competitive division. Each Monday night, we would arrive a few minutes early before the match would begin and, and warm up a little bit. We exchanged hellos, and then we got to work. Our team was made up of a pretty diverse group, compared of multiple ethnicities and people from across the ages from 20 to, I was probably the old man on the team, just about 40, um, which I would still feel on Thursday and Friday nights, still pains in my body from Monday night. But we gathered for one common mission, to win. We wanted to win. When the match was over, we would sit for a moment and um, recap what happened, and we would say goodbye, and, and we went home. Our sense of community was over until the next Monday night when we would gather again and play. And there are many similarities to my Monday night soccer league to how many people in North Texas approach the church. We arrive a few minutes before the worship service begins, hopefully. You should arrive a few minutes before the church service begins. We exchange hellos. We worship God together when the service is over. We recap for a minute, we say goodbye, and go back to our lives. Sense of community is over until the next Sunday morning when we gather again. And I want to pause for just a moment and just say, that is not how I experience you as a congregation. By God's grace, I'm thankful that is not true predominantly of the people of the trails. But if we're not careful, our understanding of the church will default to looking like any other team or organization that we belong to. But the vision of God-centered, biblically-rooted, Christ-exalting, sin-warring, life-giving, faith-building, kingdom-advancing community presented in Scripture is far more rich, far more compelling than anything this world has to offer. Last Sunday night, we celebrated the breaking of ground for our new church building. This is a very exciting season for us as a church. And so what we wanted to do is spend these three weeks before we head into the summer reminding one another of the most foundational things to us as a congregation. Because in the next 12 months, some things will change as we move into a permanent space But we pray that most things never change, namely our commitment to glorify God by making disciples. This is what we're all about through the gospel, in community, and on mission. Like a theme verse displayed at a conference, Paul's call to keep Jesus at the center of their lives hangs over the whole book of Colossians. The main goal of this series entitled Together for the Mission is the prayer that we, the Trails Church, would keep Christ at the center of our life as a church. Last week, we looked at the role that the gospel plays 
as the life-giving, unwavering center of our lives as disciples. Today, we see how the gospel shapes our life together as a community, as the body of Christ. What role does the body of Christ play in your life as a disciple? What role does the body of Christ play in your life as a disciple? The book of Colossians presents a flourishing vision for Christian community. Colossians 3, 1 to 17 provides a blueprint for living together in Christ. The church is much more than a building or a group of people engaged in religious activities. Our friend Jonathan Lehman defines the church like this. It's a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. This is an immersive expression of community that we're after. Not like the soccer team I was a part of. But when we're together, our lives are knitted together as we seek to follow Christ, to know Him and to make Him known. There are multiple lessons that a young church like the Trails can learn from this old congregation in Colossae. And I pray that we would continue to be a church specifically from this text. who are committed to three things. Seeking Christ together. Second, battling sin together. And third, walking in love together. So let me invite you to stand to your feet as we read this wonderful text, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. This is God's holy and inerrant word. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. First, let us consider seeking Christ together, verses 1 through 4. Two commands are at the heart of these introductory verses, and each one is meant to help the church fix their eyes on Jesus. That's what we're after, and both of them are rooted, grounded in gospel truths. I want to shape these two commands as reminders to our church family in this remarkable season. Here's the first one. Christian, you have been raised with Christ, so seek the things that are above. This is the first exhortation, verses 1 through 4. Christian, you have been raised with Christ. So seek the things that are above. Notice this swift if-then clause. Nothing between if and then that begins the chapter. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Paul pairs this new spiritual reality of being born again, being raised with Christ, with a specific way of living in this world. It was in heaven above that the resurrected Glorified Savior is seated at the right hand of God. And His people, who are now united with Him, have been raised up with Christ. We've been, Paul says in Ephesians 2.6, seated with Him in the heavenlies. Now, just to be clear, right now it's 11.10 in the morning on Sunday. You're sitting at Boyer Elementary in some cold, hard, blue plastic chairs. Yes, you are. But for those of you who are in Christ, that's not the only place you're seated. That's not the whole story. You, right now, are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what Paul's saying. Positionally, we're not only seated here, but seated positionally with Christ He is already in heaven, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And since we've been united with Him through the gospel, through His birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection, we've been united with Him through those things, our future is so sure. Paul says it's like we're already there. So because this is true, and we now belong to the kingdom of God, which is not of this world, we are commanded to seek things that are above where our ultimate home is. The seeking that we're called to is a deep desire to have our thinking and feeling and lifestyle continually oriented around, completely oriented under Christ's lordship over all things. We can sing, the sum of all created things is worthless in compare. For our inheritance is him, Christ, whose praise angels declare. Paul echoes the teaching of Christ himself who said in Matthew 6.33, 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when our hearts, the NIV uses the language, um, let your hearts seek this thing. And that's absolutely right. That is the shading of the meaning. So what he's saying is, as our hearts seek those things, seek Christ, we don't have to worry about the rest because he's good on his promises. And we're promised all of him. So you've been raised with Christ. So seek with your heart, with your affections, his kingdom. Our second reminder is this. Christian, you have died with Christ, so set your mind on things that are above. So he's dealt with the volition, with the will. Now he speaks to the mind. He's focused their hearts, their affection, their love for Christ and his kingdom. Now he wants their thoughts to be fixed on him as well. Notice how he tethers this command to the reality of the gospel. Verse 3, for you have died. This has already happened. When you were born again, you died to this world, and now your life is hidden in God, safe and secure from all alarm. Paul's explaining that since Christians have been united with Christ in his death, we are already counted dead to this world. We've died to this place. We're to think of the next place, the coming world, the coming kingdom. Now, let's be clear. He's not insinuating that we're not supposed to think about the things of this world. He's simply saying don't let temporal things fill the first place in your mind. You see, for those who don't know Christ, their highest thoughts are only about fleeting things like sport and leisure, career, money, fleeting pleasure, romantic love. But the thoughts of those of us who have been united to Christ soar above those things to a thing that is fixed forever, a reality that is fixed forever in the person of Jesus Christ. So yes, we are to think about the things of the world, the things God has given you um, responsibility over, the station in life that God has given to you. You're supposed to do those things wholeheartedly to the glory of God. This isn't an a, uh, eject button from the realities of this world. He's called you to have dominion over a certain part of this world. But don't give that, don't give any of it the first place in your thinking, the first place in your feeling. The only thing worthy of the first place is Christ and his kingdom and his word and your soul, which will live forever, and the souls of men and women that God's called you to live life among, which will also live forever. At the heart of every local church is a group of people who are committed to seeking Christ together. People who have known the salvation of Jesus. And so they gather, like we're doing right now, to open the word of Christ, to learn of the gospel of Christ, to together proclaim Christ to the world. And so let those things be true of the Trails Church, that we might place Christ and his kingdom first in our hearts, first in our thoughts. A.W. Tozier was spot on when he said this. Before a man can seek God, God must first have sought him. Read that again. Before a man can seek God, God must have first sought him. Yet for each of us who are in Christ, he has sought us. 
when a stranger wandering from the fold of God and he seeks us still. God seeks us that our lives would be fixed on knowing him, on walking in communion with him. Um, John chapter 4, verse, oh, I think 33, says that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. So let me exhort us. This church for whom Christ has died, he sought us first. Now let us seek him together as our first priority. The next thing our passage does is outline our work of battling sin together. Verses 5 through 11. As Christians who both know the newness of Christ and feel the weight of sin, we recognize the need for confession and repentance in our lives. This is why even as a part of our service, we make time to confess our sins together because what this does each week is bring us face to face with God's holiness and our sin. We want to deal with that rightly, which only comes through the shed blood of Christ. And so we confess our sins And in that moment, each week, the ground in this room is level. We are all sinners. Some of us Christ has saved. Others he has not yet. But we're coming face to face with our sin. We were all sinners, now called saints. And God knew that every church through the end of the age would need instruction on how to battle sin together. Particularly, Paul points out the reality of the persistent presence of sin in the life of the church and our need to be warring against it. Paul uses these mixed metaphors to help us understand the seriousness of dealing with sin. He says, put it to death. He says, put it away. Put it away like something you don't need anymore. Put it off like clothes that are ill-fitting for the people of God. To put something to death, let's deal with that first. To put something to death means we must cut off its lines of supply. We cut off the thing that feeds it. Every Christian has the responsibility before God to know themselves, to investigate the lifelines of whatever sin rails against us, and to cut it off without mercy, like Adam should have done that serpent that slithered into the garden. To cut it off. One of my favorite preachers His name is John Owen. He famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We would just widen that to the context of our church. Let us be killing sin together or it will be killing the church of God. We've got to take our sin seriously. He exhorts them to get rid of anything that is inconsistent with their new life in Christ. He specifically highlights certain vices, few of which need much commentary for us to understand. Most of them we have known ourselves. The first string of commands deal with sexual sin, which was as much a problem in the time of Scripture as it is today. Put to death what is earthly in you, worldly, sinful in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, desire. Kill it. Cut it off at the root or it will kill you. Then the circle widens to include covetousness. Covetousness is wanting something that God has not given you. Coveting may not include 
fashioning a golden calf, as we'll see in a few months, but it is absolutely idolatry because it seeks a created thing more than the maker of all things. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, Paul says. And surely the scriptures show us again and again that the heart of God burns with wrath against sin. So much so that he sent his one and only son to die in the place of sinners so that we could be called saints, forgiven of sin. That's the good news of the gospel. That instead of receiving the wrath of God, which we rightly deserve, we are given his mercy in and through Christ, something we did not deserve. And then look how Paul pulls the rug of self-righteousness from anyone who might feel prideful. He says in verse 7, In these wicked things, you too once walked. You were living in these things too. And this statement is meant to remind the church that they're not better than any sinner in the world. They are wholly different because now they're forgiven sinners. Then verse 8 addresses the sort of vices that Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. So it's easier for us to you know, shake our finger at sexual sin, things that we can see. But what about things that are a little more hard to detect? Which, when he calls them respectable sins, he didn't mean they were lesser in the eyes of God, just that they're often lesser in the eyes of people. Yet the things listed here can tear apart a church faster than a Texas tornado. Verse 8, put away these things once and for all because we don't need them anymore. What kind of things? Anger. Not the righteous kind of anger. Not a sinless anger against unrighteousness, but a vindictive anger against a person. Put it away. Wrath. Malice, which means wishing for or working towards someone else's harm. Put these things away. They're not for us anymore. Then he pulls into view some verbal sins. These kind of verbal sins have sparked more fires that have burnt churches down uh, than we could dare to count. Telling them, put away the practice of slandering one another. So talking poorly, gossip, speaking wrongly about someone behind their back trying to make another person look bad and make ourselves look better in comparison to them in the eyes of someone else? How about obscene talk that our coworkers and neighbors find pleasure in? We can't talk that way. We've got a new heart. We've got a new tongue meant for praising God, not for slander, not for obscene talk. And finally, as if we needed to hear this, do not lie to one another. We need to hear that. Do not lie to one another. So, so there's the list of vices, and none of those things are shocking to us. We, we know the scripture well enough to know that these ways of living are not worthy of a people who've been united to Christ. Yet right now, this is an essential message for us to hear as a new and growing church. To be killing our sin. To cut it off at the source. To put it away. To take it off like old clothes that don't fit anymore. And finally in verse 11, Paul says, here, and that word here means in the church. 
So he, he's dealt with the way that we sin against each other um, in our hearts, with our mouths, with our living. Now he's going to address things that cause division in the church that are not meant to, that should not. Verse 11, he says here, which is in the church, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what he's instructing them to do is put away these divisions that existed between them in the world. He's not calling them to all be the same, but for them to recognize being one in Christ now takes precedent over the things that fractured them in the world. It's the believer's identity in Jesus that Paul appeals to. These identities that they labeled themselves with in the world. They were looking for purpose and meaning in the world. Pride and accolade. And these things are no longer becoming of the people of God. So no longer are you the wealthy or the poor. No longer are you the great or the small. No longer is your identity found in your career, your resume, married or unmarried, young or old, what political party you're with. No, you're all in Christ. And Christ is all. He's in all. With a much higher allegiance, a much higher identity than these things. And now we're called to kill sin together. I, just, I sat with this this week and just wrestled through how, how do we talk like Paul talks, while also remembering, and I think he, this is what he's doing really in chapters 1 and 2, he's just rooting people in who they are in Christ so wonderfully that by the time he gets, gets to this, this piece, kill your sin, they realize they can't do this on their own. They realize it only has to come from Christ. The only way we battle sin is because Christ has already defeated it. That's essential that we understand that. The only way we battle sin is because Christ has already defeated it. Through the power of the cross, Christ has done what we could not do. He crushed death. He killed the grave. He defeated Satan, rendering him ineffective. And we have died with Christ. We've died to that old way of living. It's Paul just saying, just live like it now. And just in case, I want to just address anyone who thinks, I've got to do this better. I've got to white-knuckle my way through this. It's me and Jesus. We can do this. Paul is not writing to a person. He's writing to a church. You are not meant to do this alone. You are meant to do this in the people of God. So we talk about, uh, in this view of biblical community as a church, we ask that you would know people well and be known by people well. So here's my question. Who knows you well enough to speak into your sins? And who do you know well enough to be this gospel helper as another person fights sin? If no names come to the top of your mind, this isn't, I don't mean to fill you with shame, but an invitation. This room is filled with people who need you. And this room is filled with people who you need. If we're going to battle our sin rightly, biblically, in the power of the Spirit, this is not a solo sport. We do this as a team. We battle sin together. What comes into focus in our final verses then is walking in love together, verses 12 through 17. 
Last week we saw how the gospel produced the fruit, the righteous, wonderful fruit of faith, hope, and love in the church. Here, Paul seems to draw a circle of love around everything in the life of the church. However, before he tells them how they're meant to live in biblical community, how they're to act toward one another, I love he just sneaks in one more reminder of who they are in Christ. This is not accidental. It's by design. Paul's not trying to convince them to some sort of pie-in-the-sky utopian society. He's trying to root them in real, authentic, Christ-founded realities that they now live in, and then to live out of them as a church. He calls them these wonderful titles, God's chosen ones. He calls them holy. He calls them beloved. And each one of these remarkable appellations were used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the least of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. So there in one Old Testament text, Deuteronomy 7, 7, you see God's heart revealed for his people, calling them two of those three names, chosen and beloved. Now, Paul takes that special designation for Israel and places it on the church. We read a few weeks ago in Exodus 19.6 how God called Israel a holy nation. Well, here, the church is called holy. How is that possible? Well, Only through what Christ has done. They were made holy. They weren't this on their own, but through the shed blood of Christ, they were declared righteous and holy through the work of the cross. This is who we are as well. God's chosen, holy, beloved people. And he wants us to live like it. So because these glorious things are true of the people of God, then they walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, is how Paul says it in the book of Philippians. And then he, he lists this wonderful list of attributes that are meant to describe them. Now, again, none of these things come from within. All of these things come from the source of Christ. They come from him. They're like a new set of clothes that Christians are supposed to wear, like the robes of righteousness that we've been wrapped in. We're to put on these virtues that flow from the gospel. Again, these require little commentary because we know these virtues when we see them. Compassionate hearts. Hearts filled with sympathy toward one another. When one hurts, we all hurt. Kindness in a world filled with cruelty and hatred. Instead of pride, humility. It's thinking a whole lot about God and not much of ourselves. Instead of bravado, meekness, not short-fused and quick to anger, but patient. And you might think, well, gosh, it's really hard for me to be those things. Me too. Me too. 
Because from birth, we're none of these things. But now we've been given new hearts. And now Christ, in his great grace, is working in us, making us compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. And notice Paul recognizes how difficult this is, even in the family of God. Well, how do we know that? Because he tells us, hey, while you're at this, bear with one another. What does that word, what does that phrase mean? Well, it tells us some of you are hard to bear with. If no one comes straight to your mind, someone is thinking of you right now. Some of us are hard to bear with. While we are God's chosen, holy, beloved people, we do not always act like it. As a boy, I had this cross-stitched artwork in my room, which every boy wants. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks, Mom. And uh, I think a great aunt or someone had stitched it. It was of this little kid. He was all dirty and stuff. And next to it, it said, please be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Pretty cheesy, but I still remember it. And God isn't finished with us yet. And because he isn't, we still sin against one another. We will still hurt one another. And sometimes on purpose. If you think, not me, yep, you. Because you're a sinner. Even if you're in Christ, you're now a saint, but you will still sin. And so scripture teaches us what to do when that happens. When that happens. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Perhaps this is the defining mark of Christianity, genuine Christianity, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Notice how Paul links so closely this admonition to forgive with the reminder that they've been forgiven. This is not new for us as a church. Why can we forgive one another? Because we've been forgiven so much. We talk about this often. Here's where it comes from in the Bible. So then Paul singles out love. Put on love. The wonderful new set of clothes. Because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. So of course this list of virtues will not describe us all the time. We cannot do this perfectly. We will fall short of this. Sometimes it will require of us showing compassion and kindness to others. Sometimes people will have to show us patience and forbearance. We will all need to walk in forgiveness. So as we do, I want there's two phrases that Paul uses, one in 15 and one in 16, that I would just like to be staple prayers for us as a congregation. In 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What a wonderful thing to pray. Let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. As I seek to follow Christ as a member of this church, as a member of the people of God, let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in my marriage. Let the peace of Christ rule in my home. And then something that we want to continue to pray. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. You're, you're a church that loves God's word. And I want to tell you what a gift that is as a preacher committed to preaching all of God's word. 
You love it. Let's continue to pray that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another, one another together as the church, singing with one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, gathering week by week, opening up the word and letting it shape us as a people, asking, pleading with God, shape us through your word preached. So let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Know God, let us walk in love together. So there is Paul's compelling vision of Christian community thicker than anything else this world knows because it's founded upon Christ himself, upheld and strengthened by Christ himself, where people sent by Christ himself. Colossians 3, 1 to 17 is a blueprint for living together as a people brought together, bought together by Christ. My prayer is in this very exciting season and for years to come that we might seek Christ together, that we might fight our sin together, and we might walk in love, the love that Christ has shown us in the goodness of his gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help in this. We echo how utterly dependent we are upon you, unable to do any of these things in our own strength, and so we look to you and ask of you to supply what we need richly. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.